Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is is titled Burning Canoe from the album The Wonder Years of Austin Leonard Jones, Volume 1 and 2. That is out on Perpetual Doom. Show In the show notes, there are links to Perpetual Doom and Austin Leonard Jones's band camps. Uh, you can buy... It was on cassette. Cassette sold out. But I got a digital copy. And it's great. And and also Perpetual Doom will be releasing Austin Leonard Jones's first vinyl album in a long time. And his it's a new album, a new release. That's entitled Dead Calm. So keep your eyes out for that. I would suggest following both of those gentlemen on Bandcamp so you know when it's coming out. I learned of Austin Leonard Jones, and I was slightly embarrassed I hadn't heard of him. He's friends with people I know. And as soon as I heard his music especially this album, but all of his music, I was instantly obsessed. Uh, my friend and former guest of the podcast, Ryan Sambal, uh, was opening for him at the Permit Records Roadhouse here in Los Angeles. So I was going to go see and support my friend Ryan, who I also love. And before I became his pal, I was a, you know, a big Strange Boys fan, if you know anything about me. I'm a big Strange Boys fan. And I saw that he was opening for Austin. I was like, okay, if they're playing together, Austin's got to be good. And I instantly was obsessed with his music, specifically The Wonder Years of Austin Leonard Jones, Volume 1 and 2. But anything else I could find of his, um, I immediately bought The Wonder Years of Austin Leonard Jones, Volume 2 from Bandcamp, Perpetual Doom. Show notes, linky in there. Go check it out. Buy it. And also, the uh, Perpetual Doom releases a lot of great stuff. They recently did a Stay Tuned, a classic TV theme song covers, which Austin Leonard Jones also appears on, as does Tim Vertuli, I believe, from Caliphone, also a former guest of the podcast. So please support Austin Leonard Jones, support Perpetual Doom. Both links are in the show notes. And um, Austin is a great guy. We started talking, I approached him. I'd already messaged him before the show and asked him to do the podcast, and then he said, come, you know, find me at the show, and we started talking about uh, the book Dino, the memoir, or the biography about Dean Martin, which, if you haven't read, fucking great. One of the best biographies I've ever read. So, and and Austin Leonard Jones will agree with me on that. Also, just some side notes here. In the show notes, you can also find my website, thematdwire.com. You could become a Patreon subscriber. They're usually, unfortunately, not with the Austin Leonard Jones. We had some technical problems. I usually do a video release on Patreon and bonus content. Like, usually, we'll talk for an extra hour. Like, my episode next week is Mark Sultan, Mark BB, BBQ, Barbecue, from King Con and Barbecue Show. Mark Sultan is... Uh, that extra hour and a half, video, audio, all the extra goodies on my Patreon. You get Five bucks a month, you become a Patreon subscriber. It helps support the show, and you get all kinds of extra content, and I'm really amping up what I do on Patreon now. I'm going to be putting out audio blogs and written blogs as well as the content. I just got some fancy editing shit, so I'm hopefully going to be doing some short films. Uh, it's going to take me a minute to learn that, but thematdewire.com. Also, I'm consulting. If you want to do a podcast and you don't know where to get started or you have like a germ of an idea, I can help you develop that idea. I can also help you edit it and teach you how to get it out there in the world. 
I've worked with people like David Keckner, a.k.a. Todd Packer Champ Kind, and helped him create material. I've been a consultant to Rick Rubin. I've written for people. I've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years. Let me help you build a podcast. And when you get that podcast built, when you're ready to go out in that podcast, you're going to need a website and kellyrdewire.com. She does websites. I also is the person I'm married to. But you can go there, get a website. She does websites. She does all kinds of stuff. Also a photographer, gifted photographer. And uh, and if you can't, like, support Patreon, just tell some people about the show or write a review or say something positive. Word of mouth really helps me out. I'm really, like, at a turning point with this podcast. I'm really trying to build it up. Um, uh, You know... I've been back for two years. I took a two-year break, and I'm, I was just more concerned with getting a bunch of episodes out and building the following. And now it's the next phase, and you can help me with it. Please, I'm a nice guy, right? Uh, I, anyway, so I think that's everything. I do want to say, I did. if you get a chance to see Austin Leonard Jones live, I saw him, like I said, I saw him at the... Uh, Permanent Records Roadhouse in Los Angeles, which, by the way, is a great fucking venue. If you haven't been there and you're in the L.A. area, like, L.A. lost some of its smaller, cool venues, and, like, the Echo, which I'd loved for years, has been purchased by Live Nation, and fuck that shit. But Permanent Record Roadhouse, good old little dive bar with great bands, and it's a record shop, so you could buy fucking records. And thank God, thankfully, I don't drink anymore, because if I was drinking and in a record store, I'd be fucked. I would, I would fuck my credit card so hard. <laughs> I don't, and I don't need alcohol to fuck my credit card. I just bought a Mark Sultan record today, after telling myself and my partner I wouldn't buy records for a while. And actually, I followed through on that. But anyway, so enough of my babbling. Uh, please go to the show notes. Check it out. There's all kinds of great things in the show notes about the artists where to buy stuff, support Perpetual Doom, follow them on social media too. All of it's in the show notes. And now please enjoy my conversation with Austin Leonard-Jones. When did you live in Chicago? 2001, 2005. We just missed each other. I just moved to New York. Oh, wow. (laughs) Where'd you live in Chicago? I, well, I was a student at Columbia College. So oh, I didn't I, know that. I didn't see Yeah, yeah. So oh. I was coming around, uh, you know, their dorms, and uh, there was a place near Printer's Row. Yeah. Where I lived for a while, and then after dorms, uh, apartments with friends in, like, Humboldt Park, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Logan Square. Yeah, I lived kind of that way. I lived in Wicker Park, but I was there. I left in the two th- 2000. Right, I, and then, but yeah, I grew. I was there in the '90s mostly, and oh, great! I worked at Second City. Oh, cool! What did you study at, at Columbia? Literature. Wow, how was their program? Not very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a questionable school. But I just wanted to to live in a city at that time. Yeah, was that like? Because I know you grew up in Texas. Was that like yeah. as big as uh, big as a city it got for you to like grow up, spend like an extended period of time in like that? No, I mean we have visited cities a lot, and we lived in San Antonio, which is not a 
you know, a town. It's it's a it's a city, but it's you know, it's not like a mega city. I, I think I was more, you know, it was two thousand one pre nine eleven. Just felt kind of like that's what you did after you graduated from high school. You went to some, you know, like place like New York or Chicago where they had, you know, where you could walk and there's libraries and and art museums and stuff like that. Were you doing music then or was that even an interest? Yeah. Yeah. I've always always done music. uh, uh, I've always done that since I was a kid. So it's, it's kind of always been around. But I think when I was in school, though, I did not, uh, I didn't play in groups or anything. That was the only time in my life I didn't do it. That's interesting. Were you kind of like searching for something else at that time or? No, I think it was just a combo of school and I didn't, I just didn't, for some reason I didn't know. I knew a lot of musicians, but nobody that like at that time, I've always played music, but I, I, and, and I've kind of always shifted of what I wanted to do. But I think at that time I was strictly wanting to be like a David Yow lead singer type guy and like a Jesus lizard scratch acid type situation. And I couldn't, find anyone that was like into that kind of music i knew a lot of really great jazz musicians uh like really talented uh guys who studied jazz but nobody wanted to play like messy hardcore with a screamer uh uh, that's wild because i listen to your music and i i'm like i do you do you think that there's no jesus lizard influence these days is there I mean, I think it is, but it's not direct. It, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, that that's that's a favorite group. I love heavy music. I always have. It's one of my earliest, you know. Besides, like music, getting into music without my parents' influence was kind of gravitating towards that. So I'd say there is, but it's not a direct. It's not this song sounds like the Jesus Lizard. It might be more of a an, an attitude, a, a a a power, a sort of a just that kind of no bullshit directness of it. Yeah. Was that at all any sort of reason you moved to Chicago? Was that because? No, I, I was kind of, I, I, I tried to get into schools in like Boston and New York East coast. Um, and I didn't get in. And so I got into this one and, uh, I went and visited and I've been to Chicago several times as a kid and I just really liked it. Uh, and it felt very easy which was surprising to get around, to learn the city. I wasn't overwhelmed uh, or scared. It just, it felt very natural. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, it's such a, I mean, it's a great city to be young in too. Like my twenties were spent. Yeah. There. Yeah, it really is. It was very communal. Say, like I said, safe. It, was, it didn't feel bizarre, you know? And, and then, like I said, with the September 11th reference, you know, I, I got there and a month later that happened. So it was, a good thing I wasn't in something like New York City. <laughs> Backfire. <laughs> yeah, I was not in New York City, but I moved back right after, and it was fucking. I mean, yeah, I'm glad I wasn't there. I I don't know if I mentally could have with handled it. Yeah, I, I I remember just being in a large city was weird enough during that time, but I definitely had friends who had gone there for school and it just left right after that. Yeah, and then because I know in Chicago there was rumors that there was like they were going to come for the Hancock Tower. Yeah, <laughs> they back downtown uh, made us all stay in our dorms. Um, 
like the, the walls of our cheap dorm building might save us from <laughs> yeah i remember here they were like they're gonna get the hollywood sign it's like so <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh i didn't what did you not like about columbia i, I find that interesting because i had a weird experience at columbia too and i know that it was I, I think it was more so my fault uh um, it's something that I got the idea, and I didn't figure this out until after I left, that it's they're kind of weeding people out and because I think they just let anyone in who wants to get. Oh, yeah, they did. Yeah. I went to the theater department, and it was, it was pretty strange. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Because I, I sat in on some senior classes, and I was like, man, if I can, you know— sit it out this long like i think it's going to be good but then it was that's the hard part is you have to make it till the very last year to finally get to like a good program uh because they do let so many people in so you got to wait till everybody quits he doesn't really want to be there uh and then it's you know the older kids the seniors and stuff like that yeah. um so that that was but the, the teachers were really interesting and i i uh i read some cool stuff and i i, I think it was more so just if I could go back with that information, I would have maybe uh, been less impatient because I don't think I understood that at the time. But I was like, oh, this is because they let everybody who wants to come in. Well, <laughs> eat it out. Yeah. I, my, some of my theater classes had some extreme weirdos and I was just like, what is going on here? Yeah. Everybody kind of had a weird. Yeah. It was very strange. Uh, yeah. I, I, a lot of like, uh, yeah, it's very emotional too. People get really sensitive about critiques of their work and stuff. It was just bizarre. Yeah. I don't think I was ready for, like, I wasn't ready for college. Like I, I think I should have probably, you weren't either. Probably not. No, no, no. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, you know, I was still, a, I was a teenager. I was 18 and, and you'd think I would be ready for that, but, uh, you know, I was just, I had yet to gather the courage and the the inner strength to kind of, you know, comfortably be myself, I guess. Yeah. I feel like that took me a very long time. <laughs> yeah. They just sort of tossed us out there. I mean, I guess that's how it works, but you just figure it out. There's just such a pressure. Like I felt there was a pressure in theaters. Like you should, like you were supposed to sort of know who you are and like be able to like, and it's like, to be a performer, you kind of, it takes a long time to figure out who the fuck you are, but you suddenly you're supposed to be like, and be good. Yeah. Same, same with writing. Uh, they wanted, you know, it, from day one, it was insistent on finding your voice. And then, you know, in my instance, if your voice happens to be Tennessee Williams and, and, uh, Eugene O'Neill, um, because I'm an 18 year old, and I'm just kind of mimicking my heroes. Uh, it's tough, and you might get you know they say you're not finding your voice, which is it's, it's pushing you. But it is interesting because you are a kid at the same time, and it's like you, your voice has not grown yet. Yeah, I think I emulated people up until I was thirty easily. Yeah, yeah, I think that's common. Yeah, I catch myself doing it every now and then. You still, you think? I th- I would. Th- I mean, probably in a very. Not yeah. I, I mean, it's not direct, but sometimes like, oh, that sounds a little bit like yeah, maybe some friend of mine or somebody I like or something like that. Yeah, I'm because I'm. I don't know. I I am 
in love with your music. Like, Oh, thank you, friend. Like I have people on the show and then there's people who I'm just like, fuck, I just like greatly admire your music. Well, thank you. Me and Van Dyke. You and... (laughs) (laughs) And like your lyrics specifically, like really just, I don't know, like there's... I'm not articulating it well, but I'm just like really just like in awe of what you do. Oh, thanks, friend. And I'm sure it wasn't easy to get there. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, it definitely. I put out that first album when I was 27. So I definitely had to, uh, you know, get through all some some bullshit before that and get all that out of the way. Yeah. I've been listening to the Wonder Years a lot. I mean, yeah. I listen to all your stuff, but the, and some of the lyrics are just like, what is the one line that let's do things that will make our parents cry is such a, f- <laughs> yeah, I heard that this morning and I was just like, fuck, that's such a great line. Like there's so much in that one line. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So how young were you when you started playing? Just uh, music in general? Yeah, because you said it's something you always done. Yeah, I think about fifth grade, I had like a little classical children's guitar. Um, I I had cousins that were punk rockers and like older cousins, and they really influential on what I wanted to do from day one. And they lived in a suburb north of Austin, and they were quite a bit older about eight or nine years so they were kind of around in the mid 80s early 90s austin punk thing so um they were but surfers fans daniel johnson fans big boys the dicks uh and then also you know kind of classic 90s stuff like jane's addiction um when i was and you know they had stick and poke tattoos and a skateboard club and so they were kind of my uh, exposure to that world and then about fifth grade I got a little guitar and started messing around with that and then the the Nirvana thing happened and and so I just it just stuck with me did you I know of it did the dick still play don't they every now and then yeah I've seen a reunion I Have saw you? one yeah 12 years ago 13 years ago something like that uh, they'll do some, they'll do those every now and then I think a few guys have passed on but they'll still get on and, and do that yeah, because I couldn't, like, Jesus Lizard was one of those bands where I was, like, always trying to cobble together who their influences were. And then when I heard the Dicks, I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, oh fuck, it's really the, that's a major. Yeah, well, well, they're a very Texas-based group, too. Two of those guys are from Austin. Uh, they had a band, Scratch Acid, that was a, a classic Austin band. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they, they're, they're very Texas first wave punk also. Yeah, it's funny because Jesus Lizard always gets labeled Chicago, and it's like, it's really... I mean, they did the bulk of their work there, but they're really like they're really an Austin band. Yeah, so well, especially yeah, it's the, you know those two guys, David Sims and David Yao, uh, they grew up in Texas, but yeah, we're we're formed kind of by that Austin San Antonio uh, circle of just kind of strangeness that came out of the early '80s. You know, that, that brought us the Buttle Surfers and all those guys, and just you know, it was very isolated, very weird. You know, kind of scary, funny. <laughs> it it wasn't as a, you know, sort of fascist as it was like in Washington D.C. or New York City or something. Military, 
Is that is is there an element of that you think that because I'm always like amazed by Austin musicians. Like there's a certain I don't know if if, I, if if swagger is the right word, but there's definitely like a presence to uh, musicians who come out of Austin, and there's a different sound. And I'm always like fascinated, like what, why is that? I don't. Yeah, know. I think there was. I, I would. I would. It would be hard for me to 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 back that up now. I would think that maybe that all stopped in the early '80s. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, especially because especially now, most of the musicians from Austin are not from texas right might be a, a guy from austin who's doing really well and he's from ohio <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or maine um and so i don't think there's a lot of inherently inherently texas things going on especially in a case like with austin and and even culturally you know as we all know now it's a very tech savvy place uh, sort of a you know a new york times uh, cover article about where to move, you know, now that your rent's too expensive in New York, Austin's always number one. Uh, I don't, I don't find it very, uh, uh, representative of, of Texas anymore, but, uh, I think, you know, obviously there was a certain zeitgeist period. I mean, obviously Texas has a lot to do with cultural history in, in, uh, the United States and the world with West, but, uh, you know, I think after the 70s and then the punk thing, I, it seemed to just kind of, you know, dissipate. I, I certainly don't think Spoon is, is uh, representative of a Texas sound um, or Ockerville Rivers or whoever, you know, uh, any of these newer kind of indie Austin bands. They could be from Omaha. They could be from uh Florida, they could be from Massachusetts. You know, I, I don't see anything very Texas about it. Is that was it? Was it just sort of like that's where people started going because they could be artists and live cheaply there? And I, I think I think that had a lot to do with it, um, especially in the early two thousands. Uh, it was still a little. Le- I mean, it was it was getting up there. You know, that, that's the thing we forget that, especially people my age who were graduating high school at the end of the nineties, it was over before we got there. And I think a lot of people my age have a hard time acknowledging that. Uh, and so I, I think at that time it was, oh, this is less expensive. This is fun. There's uh, South by Southwest. There's a, a festival every couple months. And it was almost like a Christmas that happened four times a year where all the bands would come, you know, yeah. And then a couple months later, all the bands would come. There'd be these parties. There'd be the drugs. There'd be the uh the fun stuff like that. And then, you know, now it's, it's Austin is just as expensive as Los Angeles. Um, and it's extremely crowded and, uh, people are unhappy and they're overwhelmed. And so I, I, I tend, I, I might be more of a pessimist on this side, but I think culturally the train left, uh, either before we were born or, uh, while we were still very, very, very young, too young to participate. Does that bum you out or disappoint you at all? Not really. Um, the world is kind of a mean place in my eyes. <laughs> and there are, you know, survival is probably more important. And, you know, if I happen to miss the cultural train, you know, that's okay. Because I, I've, in my own day to day, I've created that for myself. I have a lot of friends whose music I love, um, genuinely love. I, I work with people I really like. Um, 
So I feel like it's just something you have to do in your own smaller ecosystem as opposed to a larger representative where you move to a city because something is happening to be a part of something in that city. Does that seem to like that's uh, you don't hear about scenes as much anymore? Is that yeah, you really don't. And 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 yeah, playing music in high school, yeah, in middle school, I was really into this punk thing, and it was kind of like a you know, it was probably over then too, but it did feel more like a we had a quote unquote scene and a circle and and a group. Uh, when, especially living in Austin, I don't feel this way so much anymore, but I was kind of floating in space. I had my friends. Uh, and we were all very close, but it was very difficult for me to to get a lot of things. Even just like a concert sometimes in, in Austin was was impossible. Uh, and, and getting support and excitement stirred up. Really? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I always thought of that scene in, in Blazing Saddles <laughs> where they won't let Sheriff Bart's family join in the wagon train, so he starts his own, and he's just going around circle. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. They wouldn't let me in their wagon train, so I started my own. And I would just kind of go in a circle for years and years and years until it was like, I should maybe get out of here. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've never, I've never, like, I've never, like, scenes and places people go where it's always been a turnoff to me. And probably maybe not trying to acclimate has hurt my career some. But I also am like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and and I, you know, like even this thing we're doing now, the, I think the internet and FaceTiming and and has kind of made that not so important anymore. You know, I I, th- I think you could be like an, uh, you know, a guy in the Nevada desert with a satellite dish, and uh, fine. Uh, yeah, that makes me feel hopeful. Because yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think that's the, the new, I think that's the way it's coming now. Uh, I don't think you really do need to go out and, and, and push yourself around people or at the cocktail party anymore. Yeah. I mean, I personally, I just had like a couple things get like thumbs down in my career and I'm like, uh-huh. why the fuck am I always waiting for somebody else to give me the go ahead? Yes. Is that, is that how you sort of approached it too? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely. I, I was kind of, cowardly uh waiting in the corner for somebody to give me permission and uh i had friends at the time that were doing really well musically signed to major labels uh doing these big tours and i thought you know i think i thought well that's how you have to do it you 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 can't just i can't just put out an album when i have these pros you know who, who go out to steak dinners in los angeles with Capitol records management and david bowie comes and to their concerts and stuff. And then I kind of watched those guys kind of, uh, implode under the pressure, <laughs> um, and quit. Uh, and, uh, suddenly things didn't seem so, the stakes didn't seem so high and it, it, everything felt very fleeting and, and very, uh, unreal almost. And I was like, you know, so I just, uh, kind of made a plunge and made a decision, yeah, to not use a band name to make record my own album, and uh, I haven't I haven't stopped. Yeah, it it seems going the mate that route never really works out for most people. The major label, no, yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think it does unless uh, 
Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I I just had one. I had two friends actually who, who were kind of involved in that stuff, and it didn't work out for either of them. Uh, and like, I don't think it was their fault. I, I think it was more so of yeah, the pressure and the sort of unexpected heaviness that comes with that that world, and 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 the fact you know I think a lot of feelings got hurt too, and and you know that when there's money and and ego and it's a perfect storm. It just blows up at the end. Yeah. And also, it does, it, this is because I was listening to your music this morning, and which I've actually, to be quite honest, I've been listening to it every morning. Because <laughs> <laughs> I go on long walks every morning, and it's like, the per, but I was like, does there seem to be like on a bigger level? And like, you don't see a lot of singer songwriters on the upper level anymore. Like, make like you you know am i not, i probably am not articulating this well no i i know what you're saying yeah um it's kind I of was, amazing to me like i feel like yeah. it's not as respected as it on that upper level as it should be yeah i i'm not very i'm not too familiar with what people are listening to these days so i, I wouldn't be able to tell you it, even even if it, it was popular i wouldn't know sadly um but yeah that's interesting um yeah, I'm not sure. Is Adele a singer-songwriter? <laughs> I'm not so... But it's like, you know, in the 70s, it was like this big race of who's going to be the next Bob Dylan. It was like... Yeah, people like, that, yeah. It was like John Prine, Tom Waits, and Bruce Springsteen. They were all like, yeah. who's going to be the big guy? And who's the singer? Yeah. And that, there was like a thing. And now I feel like there's not as much weight to it. But to me, it's like, but it don't... Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need? Yeah, I, I think some people enjoy that stuff. I, I think, uh, yeah, it's just different. I, I think, yeah, may, maybe when it comes to songs, people don't want to hear something lyric-based these days. Uh, you know, it, I, a lot of vocalizing and lyrics almost to seem kind of ambient, just like a sound or something pretty. <laughs> and I, I've had people even tell me they don't care about lyrics or they don't, or even songwriters say, I don't care what my lyrics are. I just want it to be you know, words that are cool or that's kind of their last thing they're interested in. It's always uh, been like something I pay most attention. Like I want to know, like I hate when I can't understand what the fuck someone's saying. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And, and I, like I said, you know, obviously I don't know what David Yao is saying in the Jesus <laughs> lizard, but uh, there is, I'm not strictly into that, uh, or Ian McKay in a minor threat song, but, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I, I, I'm just, I do love narrative and story yeah. and it's hard to, to hear people say that, you know, they don't even care about that stuff. It's kind of offensive in a way, especially coming from songwriters. Um, you know, it's like a painter that's not interested in blue, <laughs> which I'm sure exists, but pretty goddamn good painter. Do you think that there's a level of fear to that because i feel like your lyrics are what really can expose who you are do you think maybe there's a fear involved in that oh definitely yeah and you have to be interested in reading and writing um which a lot of people aren't uh or like you said just fearless and able to just you know say whatever crazy thing is on your mind whether it makes sense or not um i i i love delta blues music and certainly i don't think a lot of those guys were great readers but they have so much poetry in what they talk about, even if it's simple or, you know, the river is whiskey and baby, I was a duck. I'd dive to the bottom. I never would come up. 
you know, it's very special and it's poetic and it's very, you know, gives you a lot, gives you an image, gives you something to think about. But I think it is something that people aren't really willing to explore a little too scary, a little too weird, um, a little too, yeah. Exposing of what they're thinking about, um, uh, guarded and, and, and they want to sound smart and they're afraid they might sound stupid. Yeah. That's been so, cause I feel like that was, I saw Norm Macdonald talk about that with c- comedy. And he's like the biggest mistake a lot of people make is that they try to be smart instead of try to be honest and funny. And I thought that yeah. was, and he's a good example of a guy that I don't think really was concerned with coming across as intelligent and he was intelligent and he was heartfelt and he did, think about things a lot but he didn't feel the need to prove that to you that he was you know uh, a considerate you know think man yeah he cited letterman which i thought was great because he said bill maher a guy like bill maher is trying to prove that he's funny instead of or smart instead of being funny letterman presents himself as stupid and he's smarter than anybody (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all they're both very literary. They're both interested in, in uh history and, and they have an understanding of, of things more so than a lot of people do. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like I don't know. Can you write lyrics that are nonsense and that works? That seems that seems like a cop out to me. Oh, you definitely can. Hank Williams was brilliant at it. Woody Guthrie was brilliant at it. Um, a lot of pre war American music is just plain nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, it goes on and on and on. Uh, even uh, Stephen Foster, you know, the Camptown Ladies is kind of nonsensical and stupid. But uh, it's I a, guess, yeah. Now, yeah I, it, now I feel stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it's an, a, a, a house industry. Uh, uh, why don't you, you know, mind your own business? You won't be minding mine. I mean, those are all, those are great nonsense songs. Yeah, actually, I listen to a lot of swing music, and there's a lot of that within it. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of older American music was more based in just kind of silliness and and, and wordplay. But there's a, like there's still an intelligence to it. Oh, there is. There definitely is. Well, I think there is intelligence in wordplay and and stupid, uh, uh, you know, kind of simple language. I mean, I, there's an absolute intelligence. There's a message to it. It's, it's not just random, but it is. Uh, there is a tradition of you know nonsense song in America. I think. Yeah, I just saw some uh, Texas Playboys 78s at a garage sale, and I I bought them and left, accidentally left them behind. Oh, no. You'll have uh, to go back. <laughs> they're gone. They're, they, oh, no. It was a, like a, a state sale, and I have i don't know how I did it. I'm, I, and they were in great condition, and I was like, these are probably pretty fucking hard to find, and these people don't know what they're selling. And, well, somebody else got them. Wow. Robert Crumb went and got them. Yeah, <laughs> I have a, a acquaintance who does a lot of. Do you do that? Are you a big final forty five hunting guy? No, um, I, I'm. I love that music, but I, I I'm I'm not a collector. So I, I I just like to listen to the music. I I don't go out and hunt it. Uh, but I I you know I, I was I, I definitely had a period in my life, especially in my probably from age eighteen to twenty two, where I just listened to pre war music. So I was very interested in in that world and oddly in chicago there's a lot of people that are felt the same way so i I knew people who would do stuff like that yeah was there a certain reason you had an attraction to pre-war music um something about you know in in the post-war the recording quality is a little different and and it kind of shifted away from the country focus of like 
the Mississippi Delta or people from the, the country. Uh, one of my favorite records was or recordings was the Robert Johnson stuff in that he did in San Antonio. And, you know, he was a country guy and he'd come into town, and record his music and left. And that was the case with a lot of those guys. And I think it was more interesting and, 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 and raw as opposed to once they started getting into studios and getting bands and overdubbing, uh, this was, you know, just a, a person and their instrument and their vocal in a hotel room uh, before they went back home uh, to, you know, Vicksburg or someplace like that. Does any of that approach influence your approach? Definitely. I definitely. I mean, I, I've, I mean, like I said, it's not evident, but I think punk rock and country and, and blues and especially early blues is kind of like the foundation of what I like to do, but especially in that old pre-war blues because it is just vocal and instrument and uh lyric based and uh you know two or three chords at the most sometimes one uh the simplicity and the poetry of it really spoke to me as opposed to an orchestrated you know i I like things like the beatles but i i I didn't really want to make a white album but even though you know i have nothing against it i just felt more akin to these sort of simple direct uh records yeah. Um, I wanted to get into, because you mentioned that you stumbled, like you just randomly moved next to Kyle Field one day. <laughs> Is that? Yes. Yeah. In Topanga Canyon in 2015. Did you, uh, how long was after college was that? So probably. Uh, years, years, years. Yeah. yeah. Where'd you go after Chicago? I'm just, Austin. Austin. Oh, you went back to Austin? Yeah. And did you, was it just like that? you fled just because you wanted to get out of there and find something. Like- oh yeah. Uh, school is over. Uh, like I said, I, I studied literature and writing, so it's not like I had a job lined up or something I could do, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, at the time teaching didn't really occur to me, um, or something like that. And, uh, all my friends were at home. Uh, nobody, everyone I grew up with stayed, uh, and they were all at that point getting their bands together. They were doing well. There were some interesting bands that I liked and, uh, it just, uh, felt like a good fit. You know, I got a really cheap room in a boarding house. Um, just kind of, you know, felt natural, but, uh, then I just ended up staying for way too long. And what made you flee to California? Was there anything specific? To- I've always loved California. I'd always wanted to live here. And it was, it was kind of like making a record where I was just kind of biding my time, uh, kind of putting around until I made the jump. And I found a place on Craigslist. It was really inexpensive. Um, and it was kind of my window. And I was like, I think, you know, if I don't take this leap, I, I might not ever make it. Did you uh, see the place before you moved in or did you just, no, you just no. kind of place on Craigslist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a trailer, so it wasn't all that fancy. It was pretty low, low down. I, I don't live like that anymore. Uh, I dig but, that though. That's I. I mean, I used to be more that way too when I was younger. I was like, "Fuck it, I'm going." Yeah, yeah, I did. I did that. Yeah, I wasn't that young. Uh, you know, I was in my thirties, but uh, it still felt appropriate. And yeah, he was my neighbor, and we we drive past each other all the time. Uh, and we became friends. Were you aware of who he was at the time? Yeah, I was a fan. 
Did you, like, when you saw him on the street, you're like, oh, fuck, there's Kyle Field. Yeah, I'd actually ran into him once in New York City randomly. Um, I was taking a walk, and I saw Kyle. Um, I must have been 21, and he was sitting outside of a coffee shop. Later, when I told him the story, I think he said he, he was living there at the time. Uh, but I approached him and said hi and shook his hand. I think he was kind of thrown off guard. But he's very recognizable. With the beard, <laughs> he had the the a little skateboard with the Little Wings logo carved in on it, and so I I knew that was him. And uh, yeah, so I it's, I feel like we were meant to be friends because we've you know that was a random he you know neither of us were East Coast people. I was just visiting, and he was just hanging out there at that time. And yet I ran into him, and then I ran into him years later. Uh, in Topanga. That's wild. It's weird when you see, because I had that happen, not that I'm destined to be friends with James Eha, but I would see him all over, and I would go to different cities, and I would see James Eha, and I was like, how the fuck is this happening? A Chicago guy. <laughs> I would see him around Chicago all the time, and then I would go to New York, and I would see him in New York. I'm like, how is this? But we never even talked. Oh, man. Same with yeah, Flea. Next time, say hi. I should. I would see. I mean, I see Flea all around LA, but it would just be like random. It wouldn't. Oh no! Then I saw him in New York too, and I saw him in Chicago as well. And it was just like, how the fuck does this keep happening? Like, Flea yeah, ending up in, all the people you run into in different cities that you're unaware of. And it wasn't like we were in places where it's like, of course, Flea is in this place. It's like, yeah. it, was, it was just like random, like a produce section. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how it works. Did you? How like were you directly next door neighbors with Kyle or was it a little bit? No, more? no, no. I, it's pretty rural. I you don't can't really see your neighbor. It's just a very small kind of zone, and so I think you know there's like a very small town center with a grocery store, a post office, and so I think we see each other in our in our trucks driving to the or to the post office, or he might be going to the beach or something, and. uh but then we played a show, and that's how when we actually became like friends. Oh, it was just a half half chance that you ended up on the same show. No, I, a friend of mine, Paul Sisler, uh, put a show together, and I think he just reached out and, and uh, I think he might have mentioned that we were neighbors or, or that we had seen each other. I, I don't know how that happened, and uh, it, but it wasn't until that night that we actually met at a concert in L.A. or that we hung out like just you know. Right. As opposed to just saying hello at the grocery store or something. Did you guys record something together? Because I tried to find it, and I thought I heard that you did do something together. Yeah, we've done uh, – well, I recorded some stuff that ended up – we did some stuff here that ended up for like a – man, I don't know, one of those blog things. We did like a – yeah, but it was it was just his. I, I re-recorded it on my tape machine, and then I – put it on a computer and I sent it to him and one like aquarium drinkers or whatever they are, put it out. Oh, uh, cool. yeah. Yeah. But that was, but, uh, we did some covers and stuff. Oh. And when I, saw, when I saw you play recently, I can't remember if you told me this or Kyle told me this, but you're calling it, what are you calling this new, you're sort of like honky tonk. Uh, does that not ring a bell? Maybe I thought Kyle mentioned it to me. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what that is. You had like a, a what you were calling your the, your new music was like honky tonk something meets I forget. I guess it doesn't matter. 
I'm, I'm, I come up with a, that might have been me. It could have been him. We're both kind of yeah. We come up with with words. <laughs> <laughs> it seems. Uh, is it what you what I saw the other like a uh, couple weeks ago? Is that uh, that was a lot of new stuff, right? Because I felt like and yeah, it felt yeah, like a bit more. I don't know. It seemed different than the stuff I've been listening to. Yeah, some of it was new. Some of it were, were older, um, but we uh, we kind of spiced it up for a live concert uh, version. Uh, and then even some of the songs that are on this record coming out, we play live. We play them a little differently live, uh, just to make them more fun. Yeah, then I could see the Jesus Lizard influence. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah, the live, live that stuff comes through a lot more because I'm I'm not really interested in. It's not fun for me to just go up there and sing a song, you know, or just have a guitar and do my thing. It's it's uh, Buttle Surfers, Jesus Lizard, more of an intense live show is a lot more of, of what I'm trying to go for. Yeah, it was it was great and it was very loud. Yes, says the olding older guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when is this new album? What is it? Something you're working on, or is it coming out soon? It'll be out in June. Oh fuck! Yeah, I did not know this. So this is well timed. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I'm. I don't have a date, but June I know is 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 the date. Are you doing that through Perpetual Doom? Yes. Good old Lou. Yeah. They do. That label does some good stuff. Yeah, he's a really good guy. He really loves what he does. He's very passionate about it. Um, I seem to really appreciate what, like, everybody I've talked to who's on there is just, like, appreciative because it's different than all the other approaches. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was a big deal for me. I had never, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and nobody had ever really offered to help or, or be interested in helping. And I think when I first started, I might have sent some emails out, you know, to record labels uh, asking if they were interested in putting stuff out and they would I get you know, no responses so I kind of quit and just resigned that you know that probably wasn't going to happen he kind of came out of nowhere and uh, I'm, I'm very thankful and uh, uh, he approached you yeah 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 because I like I said I had, I had given up and it had been years and I it just got tiring of just writing you know, some kid in Philadelphia or something. <laughs> you know, like I laugh because I I fucking get it. Like I know the banging your head against the wall. Yeah, yeah. For some, yeah, for like somebody who doesn't play music, who lives with his mother, you know, in a suburb or something like that, and <laughs> it got annoying. It, and it was kind of part of that permission. You know, I was like, why do I care? And then so when he came and was like, hey, we'd love to help. I was like, that's fantastic. I love that too. And, you know, here's some records. How did you, because believe me, I know quitting, I know this frustration. It's just a slightly different venue than yours. But like, there's, how did you, like, when you go, okay, I'm just going to fucking quit. Like, where were you at? Because I feel like I listen to your music and I'm like, you have to know that it's great, right? Don't, I mean, you believe in it, don't you? It was never quitting that I thought about. It was more so. Uh, stop uh, no longer engaging with phantom forces such as a booking agent or uh, a record label trying to get people to help me um, I never thought about quitting songs um, I always knew I was going to write and record songs it was just I, w- I was going to stop trying to get like what my friends had 
um, which was, you know, all my friends had record deals, even if they were with just people in Austin, uh, somebody to pay for their expensive vinyl. And so I just stopped doing that. Um, which is why I don't have vinyl records. I only put out one myself and everything else is cassette just because it's so expensive. And then having to sell all that, you know, doesn't really happen. Yeah. It's not. Um, yeah. So, that, so that's why I never thought about quitting. It was more so just how I was going to deal with it. And then when, when Lou came around, that's why we also did that retrospective. Cause it was like, I have, you know, 10 years worth of records that came out that nobody really heard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can pick all the best songs and uh, remaster them and have a new package. You know, I, I was kind of thinking about, you know, like those country greatest hits tapes you get like at a truck stop. Oh, that's great. Just kind of a, a one-stop shop for new listeners because I had been doing this for 12 years, but this was like a whole new audience. Right. Uh, yeah, and it's sold out. I was on Perpetual Doom's... Yeah, it's gone. That's got to feel pretty fucking great, right? Oh, and felt really good. Uh, that felt like, you know, I felt like all the, what I've been doing the past 12 years was leading up to things like that where I can, uh, it, it, it made it all worth it. Did, um, you, did you ever doubt your talent in that era? I don't know about doubting the talent as much as doubting the state of the world. And, and <laughs> maybe the thing I still do just kind of, you know, the things I'm interested in often feel very arcane and, and, and kind of not realistic in today's world. Um, you know, music, poetry, literature, uh, you know, books, dead mediums in a way. So sometimes I felt like, you know, I was about 40 years too late to the, to the game, to the things I'm interested in. Uh, you know, I'm not very interested in computers, even, you know, trying to get the zoom microphone thing. I don't, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Uh, so I, I think I just felt like I was a caveman a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm very conflicted with, cause I'm like, cause I don't like, I think you're great. Obviously I keep fucking repeating it <laughs> and I'm like the, but I feel like, the way the world is, the state of things, I'm just kind of like, they don't fucking know what they're talking about. Like, I don't know if that's arrogant for me to say, but like you said, like literature, it's like, I got chastised for not knowing a Harry Potter reference. And I'm like, I'm sorry, motherfucker. It's not, <laughs> it's not yeah. Hemingway. Like it's yeah. not, yeah. That's it's not literature. It's popular. It might be well-written. I don't know. I also don't fucking care and don't make me feel like a small person for not yeah, giving I, a fuck. Yeah, I, I don't know if that sounds angry or arrogant, but no, <laughs> that's I, how I, I feel. I haven't read it either. I'm sure it's a fine book. Obviously, people love it, but it, it's not. You know, it, there is you know centuries of, of 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 history and things to read about and learn about <laughs> before that. Um, not knocking it. I'm sure it's great, but yeah, but it's like don't make me feel bad for not knowing your bullshit. Yeah, exactly. It's like people that, yeah, get upset if you're not a Star Wars fan. I fucking hate Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hated it as a kid. I was yeah. the prime age when that came out. In 1978, I was 10. Oh, I, so you were their target audience. Uh, you know what I wanted to see? Midnight Express. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to see Apocalypse Now. 
And I did want to see Blazing Saddles and Animal House. But, like, I didn't give a fuck about those kind of movies. It just seemed... Yeah. Insinc- like, there didn't seem like something sincere and real to me. Yeah, I know. It's kind of long-winded, kind of boring, kind of, yeah. It's not very interesting. Yeah, and I didn't even, like cartoons as a kid i was like i want to see people <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's interesting some tex avery stuff i was all, all, all yeah right. yeah he's great uh though some of it you look at nowadays and you're like Woo, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't hold up so well were you yeah. were you sort of drawn to that stuff because it sounds like you were drawn to that sort of feel as a young person too yeah um I, yeah, I mean, I, I still also, I, I mean, I definitely enjoyed cartoon comic book culture, though. I still do. Um, so it, it wasn't just, you know, hard realism. Uh, but I, certainly as I got older, you know, I, I think, you know, in my early preteens and early teens, things like Death of a Salesman, the Arthur Miller play was kind of relevatory. Uh, I, I mentioned Eugene O'Neill earlier, Long Day's Journey into Night these plays about, you know, alcoholism and family frailty, uh, those kind of started to speak to me. Um, Sam Shepard, Harold Pinter, as I started to get older in my teens. And then that stuff kind of replaced the youthful, like comics, cartoons, uh, movies and things like that. And that might've been where I first started to get into that kind of narrative. Right. Have you written plays? It seems like you was that. A- I, I've told nothing has been produced, um, but I, I've, I've 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 written monologues, uh, a lot of those. No, nothing. Uh, I, I've tooled around with like adaptations of Flannery O'Connor's short stories into into plays, but mostly monologues and stuff. But I, I it is something I think I'm going to get more into uh, in the next couple of years, um, and trying to to get that more. You know, obviously, like I said, it's another arcane medium. Nobody's really going out to hear this stuff or see this stuff, but it would be more of a personal goal. Yeah, I sort of feel like maybe this is hopeful or naive, but that these things will resurge because I feel like. Yeah, people always be I think people will be interested. People are always interested in, you know, this, it's a it's a timeless, uh, you know, stories in general is very timeless. So I think people will always be interested in it. It's just, you know, getting our eyes off screens yeah uh, you know everything is very visually uh you know and, and kind of uh with a lot of emphasis on right now right now instant uh you know something you can pull up on your phone in your car uh and something quick TikToks, you know uh twitter um a, a sort of a flash medium where it happens real fast and so you can go on to the next one. But, but I do think you'll find people who are, who get tired of that and want to go out and sit quietly and, uh, listen and watch theater for an hour or something. That was one thing that gave me hope about like, not to like pat the format of podcasts on the back, but there are a lot of slower paced, like conversations, like, I guess like this. And I like, and that's what I would like. That's why, like Studs Terkel's old like audio. If you could go find yeah. his archives, it's like they were these great gems of people just talking and sharing ideas. And it's like so to have that resurge. Unfortunately, some bozos have usurped it and fucking ruined it. But <laughs> and he was a great speaker. 
Yeah. I, I, sure. I, I, initially, when I started this, it was more of I started talking to people about their jobs, like sort yep. of like his book working. Yep. And then I veered into weirdos and uh, radicals like Black Panthers. And <laughs> I got away. Yep. And then I just sort of stuck to music for a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. But I sometimes I miss talking to the this the more radical. I don't want to call them radical because to me I'm, I agree with them and it seems normal. <laughs> yeah, the activists. Yes. Um, so, do you have a title for the album? I do. It's called Dead Calm. Dead Calm, and that's that'll be out. You said June. June. I, I don't know the date. Okay. I, I will. But it, would Lou? Do you have it set, or is it coming? Yeah, no, it's all it's all in the pipe. It's it was it's been recorded, art designed. I think tapes are ready. I think we're just waiting on a a release date at this okay. point. Well, is Lou gonna do vinyl for that, or you don't know? He is. Yeah. All right. Well, I will let you get on with your day. Um, Thank you, my friend. It's so good talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Dwyer. Please become a Patreon subscriber. Also, rate and review the show and tell your friends about the show. The best advertising and the best thing you could do to help me is tell people to listen to the show. Thank you very much and have a good day.